Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. EMDR, or Eye Movement Desensitization, and reprocessing is a little-known psychotherapy that enables people to heal from the symptoms and emotional distress that are the result of disturbing life experiences. The brain's information processing system naturally moves towards mental health. If the system is blocked or imbalanced by the impact of a disturbing event, the emotional wound festers and can cause intense suffering. Once the block is removed, healing resumes. Through the detailed protocols and procedures learned in EMDR training sessions, clinicians can help patients activate their natural healing processes. Joining me today to talk about EMDR is Dr. Jamie Merrick from the Institute of Creative Mindfulness. So, doctor, welcome. Hi, Greg. Thank you for that kind welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Okay. So, let's start off. I think most people in our audience really have no idea what eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing is. So if you can give us a little bit of background on what that is and why it's so important. Sure. And I think especially if the audience is largely people in the, in the addiction recovery community, the addiction treatment field, EMDR has a little bit more of an obscure reputation on more of the mental health end. It's becoming pretty popular as a treatment for PTSD because it has been around for about 30 years. And is actually one of the most evidence-based treatments that has been researched for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think that's, that's a good starting point to explain it, is understanding that with addictive disorders, with a lot of other mental health disorders, can come a great deal of trauma. Uh, even if trauma didn't cause those conditions, trauma can play a huge part in exacerbating their impact. And our working definition of trauma that we use in our group, and it's pretty congruent with the EMDR definition, is that trauma is really any unhealed wound, physical, emotional, spiritual, or otherwise. Trauma comes from the Greek word, meaning wound. And something that has baffled really our professions for a long time is this idea that you can talk, talk, talk about trauma, but talking in and of itself is not really going to heal it because unhealed trauma can get stuck in what we call our limbic brain and words don't have a lot to do with the limbic brain. It really is a brain that's very motivated by survival, by emotion, by killing pain, 
uh, with pleasure. So uh, many of us know about the limbic brain from its functions in what, what we consider to be the addictive process. Uh, but unhealed trauma can really get in the way of the limbic brain functioning the way it is supposed to function. And you can talk about what happened to you until you're blue in the face, but until it really heals at the level of body and heals at the level of emotion, it's just not going to clear. And I, I think to talk about why it's so important and to give a little EMDR orientation, I'll, I'll just share a little bit about how it came into my own life. I was two years sober, and I wanted to stay sober, yet I still felt myself very plagued by a lot of mental health symptoms that were just not being touched by traditional talk therapy. They weren't being touched by 12-step programming and all these even spiritual pursuits I was engaged in. And I was recommended to go to this therapist who had a reputation for doing all the weird stuff. <laughs> I'll have to jump in there. You'll have to define yeah, the weird stuff. What, yeah, what are we oh, calling no weird stuff all. here? Yeah, I, I think it's the things that a lot of people who are traditional addiction or mental health professionals can roll their eyes at. Things like hypnotherapy, energy medicine, uh, somatic forms of healing like yoga or using the body. And EMDR has been kind of written off by a lot of traditionalists because it is pretty weird. You uh, essentially, how it was discovered is it's a procedure where by moving your eyes back and forth, it helps to accelerate processing at this level of the limbic brain. So in EMDR treatment, we're using a series of questions and what may look like talk therapy at first, but the questions we ask are really about activating how, um, almost like we're working up the charge. So when you may talk about an event that disturbs you and it brings up some, discharge, some charge or distress in the limbic brain, we can get this real visceral reaction. And after kind of bringing about a little bit of that reaction, we're not making people relive the trauma, but we are inviting people to really kind of sense into how it still affects them at their body and their emotional level. And then uh, dual attention or bilateral stimulus is applied either moving your eyes back and forth left to right under the guidance of a therapist who's trained in how long to apply the stimulation and how fast. Um, and it can also be done with audio tones because although it was discovered with eye movements, the early research and, and trial and error around EMDR showed not everybody could easily move their eyes back and forth. So it's really any way that the brain is being activated, left hemisphere, right. So you can do audio headphones, um, our, our people have equipment that allows them to do that. You can do tapping back and forth. So even if you were just like tapping your feet back and forth, there's a way that that can be accessed, for instance, to help move how information is stored in the brain. And that's really what EMDR does, is by using this, what may seem weird on the surface, process of bilateral stimulation, we're essentially helping people to have shifts in their brain at a much more accelerated level than just talking about trauma could ever hope to give individuals. So. so since this is talk radio and we can't visualize this, I'm going to ask right. you to describe what that looks like if I was sitting across from you and uh, you were engaged in this. Yeah, so if you were sitting across from me, um, one thing I want to explain is before we take a client into this procedure of activating their traumatic memories, clinicians do use a system of preparation procedures to make sure that a person has adequate resources to handle what may come up. So we do a lot with breath training, mindfulness training, guided visualization, 
and certainly any of the traditional recovery strategies we may talk about, like meetings and slogans and prayer, that can all be a very helpful part of the preparation. Uh, because the work we do in EMDR, it can get deep. So you and talk so to them to make sure that they're not going to freak out. Well, yeah, but it is more than just talk to them uh, because we want to equip them with actual skills. So things like breathing, things like being able to go outside and take a walk, guided visualization, um, I feel are much better than just saying, like, calm down. Because you can tell a person calm down all you want, but unless you've actually gone over with them skills and procedures for doing that, you can get hard. But, yeah, you're exactly right, that we want to make sure that kind of going there with some of this traumatic material doesn't totally make a person come unglued, so to yeah. speak, or freak out. So after you know, we've determined that a person is adequately prepared, and that could be different amounts of time for different clients. So some people come into us, you know, let's say in long-term recovery, and have a good amount of resources they can use, we may be able to get into this traumatic memory activation in the first session or two. We have other clients where we really do have to kind of start from the ground up, building uh, emotional support. So, so in, in that the, other extreme, that would be how many sessions? So on the one extreme, even, the good extreme, yeah. just a couple of sessions, bam, you're yeah. right into it. With the long right. extreme, it's how many? It, it depends. I mean, I've, I've had to prepare people sometimes as long as four, five, six months. Um, I've had other people who the client themselves hasn't even wanted to try it, let's say, until they're about a year or two sober. But I, I don't want that ever that to sound like it's discouraging, like it has to take that much preparation to get into it. Because if you have a therapist who knows what they're doing and a client who's willing, it, it may take less. So even that are, it really has to be evaluated case by case. So then after a person's adequately prepared, what, what essentially a session would look like is um, you, you know, you work on, you can either start with the memory itself, because some people like have a really clear memory that they know was the point where they became stuck, like that time when I watched my mother die when I was 10 years old, just using that as an example. Other people don't have one specific memory. It could be, you know, I've just always been distressed. <laughs> I've just always been messed up. Um, my, my whole life script was trauma growing up, so where do we really start with one memory? So clinicians are trained in questions we can ask to help people get at a real representational memory. So let's say a person is carrying a negative blocked belief like, I cannot deal with my emotions. And that may be the thing that really keeps them from staying sober or that really keeps them from progressing in life. We ask a series of questions like when you think back over the course of your whole life, when did that message seem to be received that I cannot deal with? Uh, my emotions. And let's say the person senses into a memory of when my alcoholic father told me, big girls don't cry, for instance. So we can use that as a representational memory, even if it's not like the worst memory. So after we've identified a memory or a target that we work with, clinicians ask a series of questions that are really designed to have a person sense into all levels of experience. So when you bring up this memory, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you feeling in your body? What are you believing about yourself? And so it really is a mind-body-spirit type questioning. And I think that's a very important feature of EMDR that we ask the question a lot, what are you getting in your body? What are you noticing in your body? That it's not enough just to think and feel. We really have to go into the body distress. So when when a person gets what we call activated, when that neural network is stimulated by asking them these questions about the traumatic memories, 
then, or the representational memory in this case, then the clinician begins applying this bilateral stimulus back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So if I'm using traditional eye movements, I could just take my finger and wave it along the client's line of vision back and forth. And we've tested things like speed and distance with them in, in preparation. Um, one thing I would tell your listeners is on my website, Institute for Creative Mindfulness, we have several demonstration videos of an EMDR session. So if you're listening to this interview and it's still kind of hard to picture it, a uh, lot of free videos right on YouTube that I've done where Good. people can really get a window into an EMDR session. But basically, um, what we do is after the memory is stimulated, we'll apply the stimulation for about a minute. And after every minute or so, we check in with the client asking a question like, what are you getting now? What are you noticing now? And sometimes what they're getting is a new detail about the memory that they weren't previously aware of. Sometimes when we ask, what are you getting now, it's just a flood of tears. Other times it could be something like, I don't really, I can't really put words to what I'm getting, but I feel this big fire in my belly. Hmm. You know, go with that. And we find that with trauma, that's very common, that people know what is distressing them in their body, but they can't put words into it. And too often in traditional treatment, we badger people, talk about it, talk about it or do inventory or write about it, where so much of it is just at this body level that can never be verbalized. And so in this treatment, a person could acknowledge that's coming up, the stimulation is applied, and the brain is able to process it without ever having to say much. And does it typically happen that way, where you discover an event, and in, then you go into this stimulation phase where they're talking about their feelings and you're activating... Uh, with bilateral stimulus, and then bam, it's unclogged? Uh, sometimes it goes very quickly and very textbook, uh, just like you described in that really brilliant summary. Other times it can get a lot more complicated. Because uh, even the thing with trauma is trauma can be more of a single or simple incident variety, or it could be more complex. So one memory may tie into another memory, may tie into another memory, may tie into another memory. I often say the brain of a person with complex trauma can look like that big ball of Christmas lights in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, mm. where Clark Griswold can't get it all untangled. Yeah. And so if so many memories are tangled in, it may take longer. It may take several sessions to really get through all these other memories that are tied to the representational memory, but eventually they will untangle. And something that clinicians are trained in is how to close sessions down safely if you can't get through everything in one session. Um, because, yeah, and, and then once people learn how the procedure works a little more effectively for themselves, often you find that their own resistances start to fall down. And so you are able to get through representational memories a lot quicker than when you first started the, the therapy. So clinicians learn how to close down a session safely. What's, mm -hmm. what's the danger? What's the threat there? If they don't, what happens? Yeah, because what we don't want to have happen is a person, like, leave a session when they're still feeling pretty physically activated, like, oh, I have this fire in my belly because this memory we're working on, uh-oh, you know, it's 12 o'clock, time to go to lunch. So basically what we don't want to do is leave people still feeling physically activated because, I mean, in a worst-case scenario, they can go out into life and potentially want to do something not healthy, to help that fire in the belly go away, which is what a lot of our clients do anyway before coming to us. 
So what we're training clinicians to do in closure is to use a lot of those techniques I explained previously, using the breath. If a client's open to it, using things like prayer and meditation, centering yoga, body-based type exercises to really help at least put it back into the box safely. And we even do a technique called the container exercise, which is a visualization where you imagine putting any uh, unaddressed material into a box and leaving it there for safekeeping. And one of the things we do in expressive arts work in concert with EMDR is actually have people make containers. Like you might have them make what we've called God boxes in in 12-step work um, to kind of pack it away. And all of this is explained in the preparation to let people know that we may not get through everything in a session. Uh, So how do we take at least 10 minutes at the end of a session to close it down safely so that you don't leave the session feeling so activated? So the traditional, I guess, I'll call it old school model of addiction was that it, all of it was caused by some trauma in your life or, or in most cases. But now with the opioid epidemic, what Mm -hmm. we've learned is 75% of the people that are addicted to heroin today, it all started with a legitimate prescription. Mm -hmm. So my question is this, um, this technology and, and mm-hmm. this treatment program. Help me relate that back to the realities of today's opioid epidemic and the fact is that 75% of the people have started legitimately through a legitimate prescription. I think an interesting angle on that may be, so what was the prescription written for? And if it was an actual physical ailment or accident, that can potentially be something that not only has physical implications, but perhaps some mental emotional implications as well. And the thing that we're seeing with really a lot of trauma-focused therapies, not just EMDR, is it may not necessarily eradicate how the biochemistry of the brain has changed with addiction, but it can certainly help to rewire how a lot of the mental emotional implications around that original injury were stored in the brain. There's also procedures within EMDR that can be utilized now that help people directly target things like craving. So even if you're not, let's say, identifying as a person who has major hardcore mental emotional trauma, uh, opioids and really any substances (laughs) change the brain, change the brain chemistry. And there are procedures that clinicians who are trained in EMDR can do to help people manage at the level of, of craving. And that may give people just enough lift to be able to embrace a recovery lifestyle. So, and the other thing I would note too is even if like the statistic you cited is that things started with a legitimate prescription, I would argue that what a lot of people get into when they are in a state of active addiction will beget more trauma. Um, I think that trauma often gets minimized when we look at recovering addicts. It's like if you were shot, for instance, this is just an example. If you were shot trying to score drugs, you know, you brought it on yourself. It's still a trauma. Getting shot or getting stabbed or prostituting yourself out or I should say trading drugs for sex. You're still putting yourself in traumatic situations that can exacerbate the impact of all of this on the brain. And that's where any trauma-focused kind of mindset can certainly help. And that makes a lot of sense. 
the um, when you're caught in the addiction cycle, that in yeah. and of itself it can be very very oh. traumatic. Particularly the deeper oh you gosh, go into yeah. it, you've compromised mm-hmm. your morals. You've compromised totally. pretty much of everything. Yeah. So and let's so talk even about even if trauma. Just one more comment on that. So mm-hmm. even if like because a lot of people struggle with some of the dialogue around, you know, trauma causes all this stuff. And even if you don't believe that trauma causes a lot of problems connected to addiction and mental health, it definitely exacerbates it. Because having any diagnosis in this society can bring about more traumatic experience, more wounding experience. And that will need to be addressed as part of recovery. So now let's pivot and talk just a little bit about the evidence that backs this program as being a very effective means of treating substance use disorder. Well, EMDR therapy is now considered an approach to psychotherapy. When the founder, Francine Shapiro, really kind of serendipitously discovered it and put it together in 1987, um, it really was initially designed as an adjunctive technique that clinicians of any orientation can learn. And it was first published as a randomized controlled study, which is pretty rare for something to debut with that level of evidence in 1989. And a lot of people wrote it off as, like we said, weird stuff coming out of California and didn't pay much attention to it in 89. But it already started to get the attention of people who were working with trauma that grew frustrated by talk therapy alone. So Dr. Shapiro, who's really been revolutionary compared to a lot of other compatriots, has really plugged ahead with the importance of research, research, research. So EMDR, as I mentioned, is one of the two most validated treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder, the other being CBT. And it is on the SAMHSA Registry of Evidence-Based Practices for Treating PTSD. It is on the World Health Organization's 2013 recommendations of top two preferred treatments for treating post-traumatic stress disorder, EMDR and CBT are their two preferred and a lot of other major clinical organizations have rated EMDR as highly efficacious because the research is massive, especially when looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, the research is a little less specific on using EMDR purely as a substance use disorder treatment. For instance, there's not been any major research done to this point looking at EMDR as like let's say, a treatment center's main modality. And no treatment center out there is using EMDR as their main thing. But the reason it has been used effectively in treatment really since the beginning is the comorbidity between post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorders is incredibly high. I mean, that can be validated by any statistic check. (laughs) And the, the idea is that PTSD has been identified as a factor in relapse untreated PTSD is one of the most significant factors in relapse. So there is a good amount of research on using EMDR with people with substance use disorders to treat the PTSD. There was a really interesting uh, study done in a Thurston County, Washington drug court uh, in the early 2000s. Two of my mentors actually did the study, which um, found that something like 60 to 70% of individuals in the drug court had a PTSD diagnosis in this drug court program. And uh, participants in the drug court were given a choice of treatment as usual plus EMDR in addition to, or the choice of just treatment as usual. And the EMDR group fared much better in terms of their long-term symptoms. Uh, I did my dissertation research back in 2009 with a treatment program in Ohio that was one of the first to bring in EMDR as an adjunctive treatment to their kind of traditional program of groups and 12-step work and and lifestyle skills and all of that. 
And the individual, Ginny O'Keefe in Columbus, um, Amethyst is the program that, that, I, that I had researched. Uh, I had met her at a recovery conference in, in, you know, around the time I was working on my, my PhD. And she had just anecdotally observed that since they brought EMDR into their treatment program, they noticed their retention rates significantly improve of people wanting to stay and stay long term. And so I was fascinated by her observation and decided to research amethyst uh, back at, at the time that I did and really found that one of the reasons it works so well at amethyst is the team there, at least at the time, was very responsible about how they implemented it. For instance, it wasn't a, put in in a one-size-fits-all type of way. It was some clinic clients, you know, they waited several months to do EMDR because that's when they were most ready. Other clients, they used it much sooner because said clients might not have been able to even sit still during group. One of the cases I'm thinking about, for instance, she, w she needed it done much earlier into the recovery process. It was not a couple months in. It was a couple weeks in because she wasn't even able to benefit from group therapy because she was so closed down due to her trauma. So they, for instance, made the judgment call about doing it earlier so that she was even able to benefit from treatment in the first place and it ended up working like a charm. So that was one of the things that impressed me in my research, which was later published in two APA journals, that implementation really has to be done in a very client-centered way. Uh, so yeah, that, I mean, that's just some of the, the overview of, of the literature and the evidence. And Steve Danziger, who's the co-author on my new book, he is the clinical director of a program in LA called Refuge Recovery Centers. And they are working on implementing a program that is Buddhist mindfulness-based recovery as a, sub, not as a substitute, but as, a, well, I guess as a substitute to more of the traditional 12-step model. Even though they're not anti-12-step, Noah Levine's refuge recovery work is really at the heart of, of their treatment center. And they are using EMDR um, really as an approach quite early with a lot of their clients. And they're doing some outcomes work right now, but are really seeing just how it's helping with retention and overall recovery goals being met by taking this focus on trauma so soon. I'd like to publish some information about that, if we could, along with your podcast, sure. Doctor. Yeah, not a problem. So uh, this has been really informative. Our time has just flown. So um, mm. I'll, I'll ask you, what final thoughts would you like to share with our uh, listeners here, Dr. Merrick? Uh, about your experience sure. with EMDR and and uh, maybe the opioid epidemic in general? Yeah. Well, I, I think a message that I have overall for the recovery community is that one of the most dangerous things we can say is this is the way we've always done it. And I am not anti-traditional methods to addiction treatment. Um, I mean, I'm in long-term recovery myself. It was the 12-step path that really helped me to get sober but it was techniques, approaches like EMDR and other holistic healing methods like yoga and mindfulness that helped me to stay sober and really helped me to, to thrive as a woman in recovery because had I not addressed my trauma, um, I think I would have stayed in a cycle of perpetually band-aiding my wound as opposed to really getting at the core of what things are about. So, so much of my approach to treatment and healing is all of the above. And I think we have to be able to meet, I know it's almost a cliche at this point, to meet clients where they're at, but I fear so many treatment centers and treatment approaches don't do that. And a lot of what my work and my mission is about is to equip people with 
um, whatever they may need because healing is a messy thing. And we may need to get at it from several different angles, from several different perspectives. Well, once again, doctor, thank you. Thanks for having me. We've been joined today by Dr. Jamie Merrick, who is from the Institute of Creative Mindfulness. Jamie has shared with us the eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, better known as EMDR, and the power that it has in the healing process and in the recovery process. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.